Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. We really wish we could start this week with more cheerful news, but the coronavirus pandemic's toll on the Golden State continues to grow. Over the weekend, statewide deaths from the virus topped 7,000, and there are now more than 320,000 confirmed coronavirus cases in California. There's also been a big spike in hospitalizations related to COVID and an increase in the percentage of people testing positive for the virus. Meanwhile, many people in places like Los Angeles County are struggling to make appointments at often swamped coronavirus testing facilities. Over the weekend, I visited a walk-up testing site in the city of Long Beach. It was set up in the parking lot of a community college. In the long line of people waiting, I talked to 65-year-old Marta Miranda. How many times have you tried to get an appointment for a test? Uh, Three times. And I let them know that I have some symptoms and I'm diabetic and I want to make, to have an appointment. And they told me, oh, unfortunately, we don't have any right now, but you can try going walking. So that's why I'm here. I tried, I say, okay, I'm going to try. You just showed up hoping you'll get an appointment. Yep. And your plan today is just to stay here until you get a test somehow? Mm-hmm, yes, because I want to be sure that everything is okay. Many people at the coronavirus testing site started lining up well before sunrise to make sure they could be tested. They included Maria Solis, who came to get tested with her daughter. Solis spoke to me in Spanish. Este, pues venimos desde las 5 de la mañana para ser de los primeros para estar en línea, porque hay muchísima gente que queremos hacer el examen para quedar. You're saying you got here at 5 in the morning because there's just so much public interest in a test. Yes. ¿Y cómo se siente usted ahorita después del de proceso? How do you feel right now after you've gotten a test? Cansada, con hambre, sed. <laughs> Hungry and thirsty. Sí. A manager at the test site told me workers there were moving as quickly as possible to get people tested. But testing demand has increased as people begin returning to work. Let's turn now to the coronavirus and education. Right now, classes in the country's second largest school district, the Los Angeles Unified, are supposed to start again in August. But the union representing LA Unified school teachers, the UTLA, says campuses should remain closed because of the coronavirus. A new poll shows 83% of UTLA members are against reopening schools next month. Here's KPCC's Carla Javier with more. Bargaining team member Jennifer McAfee says United Teachers lost Angeles had questions for the district when they met. If someone gets sick, what's the protocol for that? What classrooms look, what the lunchtime looks like, you know, PE, coming and going, transportation, um, really an emphasis on the hygiene. And she says that's just the tip of the iceberg. The district declined to comment, but UTLA Vice President Gloria Martinez says. The answers were just not to our expectation enough for us to say, you know what, 
we're ready. We have a plan. That's just not the case. Superintendent Austin Butner has said the district is considering hybrid schedules where groups of students would spend some time learning on campus and the rest learning online. For the California Report, I'm Carla Javier in Los Angeles. California is hiring more than 850 seasonal firefighters to make up for firefighting work usually done by prisoners. But those prisoners are now in coronavirus quarantine. KQED's Julie Chang reports. Thousands of inmates work on these crews during wildfire season. In return, they may receive a sentence reduction and some wages. Out of the 192 inmate fire crews in the state, only 94 are currently available, 30 of those in the northern region. That's because the rest are currently under a mandatory two-week quarantine. A dozen fire camps in Northern California went into lockdown late last month after the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation determined inmates in those camps were exposed to the virus. There have been more fires this year compared to this time last year, according to Cal Fire. CDCR says they expect crews to return to work early next week as their quarantine period is lifted. For the California Report, I'm Julie Chang. And staying on the pandemic and incarceration, late last week, state officials announced that as many as 8,000 inmates would be released from state prisons to help slow the spread of COVID-19. Though many say it's a step in the right direction, re-entry into society from prisons brings a whole new set of challenges. And support groups say thousands awaiting release are going to need more help from the state to make this transition successfully. KQED's Kate Wolf has more on how re-entry groups are filling these gaps for the newly released. In early May, Jonathan Chu was released from St. Quentin after serving his 16-year sentence. Chu had imagined being greeted by family, but it wasn't safe for them to travel during the pandemic. Instead, a huddle of friends wearing masks was waiting for him, other formerly incarcerated people and volunteers he'd met in prison. We were happy to see each other and uh, so it was as good as anybody could expect during a pandemic. Because the state doesn't schedule transportation for people when they get released, many rely on volunteer reentry groups for these pickups. Coney Kim is with the Bay Area Freedom Collective. Groups like hers coordinate with officials to find out who's getting out and might not have family to collect them. And, you know, take them out for their first meal and maybe take them shopping for some clothes to start off because people literally just have the clothes off of their back. Corrections officials say they are trying to leverage state and federal resources to house people when they get out. But Kim says it's not clear where that housing will be and that shelter is only one of the many challenges of reentry. Take employment, for instance. I think it's difficult for everybody right now. But for people coming out of prison, they have all the added barriers of having a record and having to deal with that stigma. Officials estimate that 4,800 people could be eligible for release by the end of July. For the California Report, I'm Kate Wolf. More young people are ending up in the hospital with COVID-19, and a new study says smoking is the biggest risk factor for young people who get really sick. KQED's health correspondent April Domboski has more. Young adults between the ages of 18 and 25 currently make up 14 percent of COVID patients at UCSF hospitals. A new study from UCSF researchers finds one out of three young people are at risk of severe illness from the coronavirus. The main driver of that risk is smoking and vaping. Young people are far more likely to smoke cigarettes than they are to have underlying health conditions that make COVID worse, like obesity or diabetes. Researchers found that medical vulnerability in young adults dropped by half if they did not smoke. For the California Report, I'm April Domboski. 
Even during the pandemic, thousands of asylum seekers have been turned back at the U.S.-Mexico border. Late last month, an asylum-seeking mother was given this choice, leaving her new U.S.-born child in this country alone or both of them returning to Mexico. Reporter Max Rilden-Nadler has more from San Diego. The Honduran asylum seeker gave birth hours after being arrested by Border Patrol near San Diego. Mitra Abedalahi is an attorney with the ACLU. She said the mother and the baby had no choice but to return to Mexico. These people, both, both the mother and the father, were literally driven in a patrol vehicle to the border and forced to walk across into Mexico by armed agents. I, I don't see choices there. A Border Patrol spokesperson said that while the mother has no right to be in the U.S., she could have chosen to return to Mexico and leave her U.S. citizen child in their custody. Last Friday, local advocates asked the government to allow the family to enter the U.S. to continue their asylum process. Luis Gonzalez is an attorney with Jewish Family Service. He says this type of choice is unnecessary and typical of a Department of Homeland Security that is targeting vulnerable asylum seekers during the pandemic. But I think this could have been resolved by DHS by exercising their discretion to parole the entire family together into the United States. As of Sunday night, the family remains in Mexico. For the California Report, I'm Max Rivlin-Adler in San Diego. And finally, there's evidence the coronavirus was present in California much earlier than March when the state shut down. But assuming you're now immune to COVID, just because you were sick early in the year with flu-like symptoms is risky. KPBS's Claire Trageser has this firsthand account. We probably all know someone who thinks they had COVID-19 back in January. What's your title? Claire's husband. (laughs) My husband, Seth, was really sick in mid-January. After three weeks of illness, I did finally convince him to go to urgent care. He got an inhaler and some antibiotics. Seth's symptoms so closely matched the coronavirus symptoms. You kind of wonder if those sudden and unusual illnesses could be attributable to that. And a week after he got sick, I was knocked out for two days with complete exhaustion and body aches. So we decided to check it out. Hi, Claire. I'm Gina. Hi. Hi. (laughs) We went to the La Jolla Institute for Immunology, which right now is leading a global study searching for antibodies from people who have survived coronavirus. A nurse there took blood samples from both of us, put them in a centrifuge, and passed them off to Dr. Jen Dan, an infectious disease researcher. She would compare our blood to other samples from people who had survived coronavirus and people who hadn't been infected. If we had the same antibodies as the survivors, that would strongly suggest we had also had COVID-19. Dr. Erica Ullman-Sapphire is the director of a global antibody consortium at La Jolla Institute for Immunology. We think that most people that have been infected will have made an antibody response, but there may have been some that didn't. Sapphire says the evidence suggests people with antibodies likely have immunity, but they don't know how much or how long it lasts. The research she's leading is working to find the very best antibodies from COVID survivors, which will be used to treat COVID and hopefully prevent it in the first place. The next day, we went over our results with Dr. Shane Crotty, an infectious disease expert at the Institute. Here's Claire, here's Seth, and then here are the two positives. Our marks sat on the graph below all the other negatives. We were super negative. 
meaning we definitely did not have coronavirus. We're like below negative. So what do the results of our trip to the lab mean to you? They mean that just because you had COVID-like symptoms doesn't mean you had the virus. And even if you did, and you have the antibodies, you still might not be immune. For the California Report, I'm Claire Tregesser in San Diego. And that is the California Report for Monday, July 13th, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in L.A. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, acknowledging the vital work of local public health departments to keep Californians safe during the pandemic. On the web at chcf.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems, and Personal Capital, offering remote telefinance services with financial advisors and digital financial planning tools. PersonalCapital.com. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country, on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.